over a span of 2,000 years, 40 authors on three different continents and in three different languages penned 66 books, all of which were supernaturally inspired and intricately designed as God's revelation to man. The spoken word of God, living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword, recorded and bound just for us. Join us on a journey from Genesis to Revelation, all 66 books, the big book, cover to cover. This is Michael Easley in Context. We are in the book of Job. When we started this book, the cover to cover series, uh, the big book, uh, one of the things we discussed was the different kinds of literature. And today we're jumping into what is called wisdom literature or sometimes the poetic books. And so we have this corpus, these five books that constitute wisdom literature. There are Job's, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and the Song of Solomon. One of the important parts about differentiating wisdom literature from uh, the first Pentateuch and then 12 following books are, those books are essentially a chronology. The Pentateuch we discussed was really one book in five chapters, if you will. But when we look at the first and second, Kings, Chronicles, Samuel, uh, we look at those, we're getting a history albeit sometimes a little bit uh, difficult to sew together. In general, it's the history of the nation. It's the history of God's chosen people, Israel. Uh, when we come to a wisdom literature, that stops. We're no longer looking at a chronological or his, an historical storyline of God's chosen people. We're getting this corpus, a body of literature that is timeless. It's not constrained to a time when uh, you know, th- these things happened during Xerxes. These things happened under Esther's time. These things happened when David was king. We're looking at something uh, quite different. And these universal principles uh, translate through time. So it's contextual. We say that applied to Israel at this time. Now we say it's a lot easier to make application. Uh, One of the features of wisdom literature is that it's a a lifelong endeavor. We never become wise. Uh, If a person does, avoid them. Uh, wisdom, we're always growing in wisdom. When we come to the Proverbs, wisdom is a metaphor of walking, that you walk in a way of wisdom. It's a wordplay, halak, that you're walking in wisdom because it's a lifelong process to grow. Uh, I know each of us, whether you're in 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, you look back on the prior decades ago, you know, I didn't know that now. Now I understand how important this is. And there's no substitute for age, right? No substitute for experience. And so wisdom parallels that if we're teachable. Uh, Poetic literature is not rhyme and meter. When we sing songs today, uh, they're put to, structured in our music. There's a rhyme, there's a meter, of course, a lot of other pieces, tempo and whatnot, rate pitch. But the basic line is you're hearing something that has a pleasant meter to it, and the rhyme cements it in your hearing. That's the Western way of thinking about poetry. Differently, the Semitic language was not, didn't rhyme. They used structure. And the structure is very complex and very beautiful. But for an English reader who uh, perhaps doesn't have any interest in languages, it can be a little bit overwhelming. I'm not an engineer, and to put me in front of a cat and say, make something, it'd be impossible. 
uh, but there are tools that you can learn to make understand engineering a little better. There are tools you can learn that will help you with these corpus of wisdom literature. For example, we know what alliteration is when we use a word to spell something out. Hebrew used an acrostic. So some of the Psalms all begin uh, Aleph, Beit, Gimel, Dalet, A, B, C, D. They begin with the letter Aleph. So all the words begin with A, A, A. The next all B, B, B. The other thing they did often was called a chiastic structure. If you've been around uh, my teaching for any length of time, you've seen I, I show illustrations of this. But chiasm, the, 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 the letter key in Greek looks like a stylized X. And a chiasm is a point A and then an A prime, B, B prime, C, C prime, D, D prime. And they can go on quite elaborately. But what the, what the chiastic device is showing you, there's something very similar at the beginning and the ending, A, A prime. The book of Job has a beautiful story in the front and a beautiful story in the back. So it lends itself to, for people to say, hey, there's a chiastic device going. Mark is full of chiasms. Uh, Psalms are full of chiasms. And the point is, structurally, you're hearing something said in a different way or restated or repeated until you get to the point, which is in the middle of the chiastic device. So the X marks the spot is true in a chiasm. What's in the middle is the point. Momentary light affliction produces the eternal weight of glory. Momentary versus eternal. Light versus weight. Momentary light affliction, eternal weight of glory. Light versus weight. Momentary light affliction, eternal weight of glory. It's a perfect chiasmic device. So even though it has a lilt to it and we like the way it sounds, the chiasm shows you visually the structure of what the writer's doing. So wisdom literature is chock full of parallelisms, of couplets, of triplets, of restatement, of repetition, of twisting things around with word plays, of pithy statements. And so when you come to these five books, you have to change your thinking cap. I'm not reading a narrative. I'm not reading history. I'm not always reading sequence. In fact, the joke in Hebrew class was that uh, when Solomon finished the Proverbs, he was taking the manuscript to get copied, and he dropped it and spilled it all. And they put it back together, and so you have all these crazy things that don't seem to tie together in the book of Proverbs. Pejorative, but nonetheless explains these, these pithy statements, these wisdom, these short, memorable uh, items. Let me give you uh, Job's a survey, and again, I appeal to Ken Boa and Bruce Wilkinson's talk to the Bible for their help. Job was a righteous man who was suddenly embroiled in an intense ordeal of every kind of suffering. He went through three cycles of debate with his friends who insisted that his misfortune must have been caused by sin. When God finally revealed himself in his majesty and power to Job, it became obvious that the real issue was not Job's suffering, but God's sovereignty. Let me read that again. It became obvious that the real issue was not Job's suffering, but God's sovereignty. Job's questions were never answered, but he willingly submitted to the wisdom and righteousness of God. Um, a friend of mine was traveling 
pre-Sirius, pre-iPhones, pre-MP3. He was traveling across country when you're outside of FM band and you're searching for AM on your radio. Any of you old enough to remember those days? And you're driving across country and you're looking for something to try and stay awake because the family's asleep. And he stumbled across this preacher on the radio who was preaching on the book of Job. And his theme was, I can't eat by day, I can't sleep by night, and the woman I love won't treat me right. That's a hook for a song, I'm telling you. I can't eat by day, can't sleep by night, and the woman I love won't treat me right. Uh, that's a pretty good synopsis of the way of looking at this storyline. What I want to do is look at some overview and observations of Job and then suggest five lessons. It is a favorite book of mine. It's a hard book for many. But uh, if any of you live with uh, chronic disappointment, chronic disability, cancer, you have friends who are uh, live in suffering and pain, this is sort of the respite in a strange way. It's the place to go because it's one of the oldest questions asked, and it is about how do we live with disappointment and injustice. So first of all, in this overview and observations, let's talk about Job as a piece of literature. It's the earliest, arguably, and the oldest book in the Bible Uh, The oldest book in the Bible is not Genesis. It is the story of Job. It's dated much earlier, and there's a number of indicators. I won't bore you with those. It probably occurred in the patriarchal time, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, somewhere in that time frame. You must remember pre-flood and even post-flood, people lived a lot longer than they did. Adam's 930 years old when he dies, and I don't think that's hyperbole or a mis- or typo. Uh, there are good biblical, theological, and even geological reasons for why people lived longer prior to the global flood. There's no known author, and there's no known location for the land of Uz, U-Z. We don't know where it is, and while speculation abounds. The title is obviously a proper noun. It's Job. It's a name. But Scholars never rest. Scholars always have to dig things up and see what's going on. And so the word Job, in the way it's used in Hebrew, can mean the object of enmity or to treat someone as an enemy. Now think about it. That's sort of the hidden meaning of the word Job, to treat someone as an enemy. Who's going to treat Job as an enemy? Satan. How is he going to respond when treated as an enemy? Well, the thought plickens even more because in the Aramaic language, which, by the way, Aramaic is much, much like Hebrew. Uh, if you know Castilian Spanish and you know Tex-Mex, uh, think of them in that regard. There's a lot of similarities between Aramaic and Hebrew. Um, you, you Bible study nerds like me, the, the, the Bible is about 23,000 verses and change, give or take. Um, if you looked at the Aramaic verses, they're they're shy of about 250. So it's a very small fragment of your Bible was written in Aramaic, but it nonetheless occurs. So the Aramaic word, which would be like a loan word for Hebrew, the Aramaic word for Job means one who turns or one who returns, or you could say one who repents. So that gives a little more flavor to this word Job. You know, this is a book, Paul. This is Frank. Uh, I mean, there's a lot more going on in this word, perhaps, I don't want to overstate the case, but uh, we, you've heard the phrase double entendre. It could be a proper name, but it could also be a proper name that talks about someone who was pursued, 
someone who endured hostility, and someone who turned and repented. And that would all be fitting within the storyline of the book of Job. We have two biblical references I want you to see that give a little framework for this uh, uh, book. The first is in Ezekiel 14.14. And why don't you read this with me from the screen. Even though these three men, Noah, Daniel, and Job, were in its midst... Of their own righteousness, they could only deliver themselves, declares the Lord. Now, just a brief backline of this verse. Um, judgments are going to occur under Ezekiel's pronouncement. And he's illustrating, even if you had the three, let's just say, most righteous people we know of, they could have barely survived. That's the gist of this verse. So Ezekiel is using uh, Job as a reference point to say... Um, even as righteous as he would have been, to paraphrase it, it had been a tough go. So when you look at the story of the book of Job, he's pointed out as this righteous, singularly righteous individual, he had a very difficult task to remain righteous. The second one is from James 5.11, and you may know this verse a little more well than Ezekiel. Uh, read again with me, James 5.11. We count those blessed who endured You have heard of the endurance of Job and have seen the outcome of the Lord's dealings, that the Lord is full of compassion and is merciful. And of course, if you know the story of Job, it is a happily ever after ending, but not without a lot of trauma and scars and wounds that would never go away. Just because things are restored, uh, losing all of your children, uh, I don't know how anybody recovers. In, In Cindy's and my world of friendships over the years, uh, losing a child is the most devastating thing that happens to any. Some of you have lost a child. The most devastating thing that happens to any family, any person. You're not supposed to bury the young. You're supposed to bury old people, your parents and grandparents. You're not supposed to bury your children. And it is, is most, I mean, to lose 10 children in one day. How, just that percussion alone to lose your children. And so, uh, the endurance of Job and the length of the book lend to a lot of things that we'll talk about as we continue. Uh, Job is described as righteous and prosperous in chapter 1, the first five verses, and the last eight verses of the book. Um, so uh, sometimes literature is classified. This is classified as wisdom that is a comic literature. Comic, meaning it starts with everything's hunky dory and then it goes down, down, down to this terrible situation and then it's restored at the end. So we call it comic, not to make fun of it or like cartoon or like a graphic novel, but it's comic in the sense that it starts fabulously. It's a horrible storyline, but it ends resolved and with great, uh, uh, great joy. He is even more prosperous in the end than he is in the beginning. And that's James' reference about, we heard of his endurance and how the Lord was full of compassion and mercy. And again, if you've lost a child, um, fast forward and you work through that, or maybe we've seen couples adopt later in life, uh, not to replace, but just to have another child, and, and how they process through all that. And they will look back, never short, always years later, and say, God was kind, God sustained, God carried us through. And that's part of the endurance of Job that we learned from. Um, there are a number of verses in the story that talk about Job's righteousness that I don't have time to unpack all of them, obviously, and what we're trying to accomplish. But Um, You know a little bit about Old Testament structure. And at the city gate, 
as Israel built its gates in most Middle Eastern countries, there was like, let's just call it a zigzag. So you couldn't come in with a, with, on horses, on mounts, with a lot of troops. It was like a log jam to get into a city wall. And when you go to Israel, tell Dan and Megiddo or two places we take you and say, look, you imagine coming with hundreds of troops to try to get in this city? Not to mention they had armed guards uh, mounted on the walls. So when you're going to breach a city, it's no small thing. So the elders conducted what we call the Chamber of Commerce at the city gate. The city gate was sort of town hall or the, the downtown area of the city. And the elders would sit there. Remember in Ruth when Boaz goes to the elders at the gate of the city and trades his, his sandal? Uh, that's a legal transaction in antiquity. Well, uh, Job is depicted in the book as one in the seat of honor, one who went to the gate and was seated at the gate. I would call him an elder of Uz or whatever territory he was in. It describes him as one who delivered the poor, who helped the widow, who was a father to the needy, who dispensed justice. And there's a great uh, phrase. He says, I broke the jaws of the wicked and snatched the prey from his teeth. It's a metaphor. He didn't physically break somebody's jaw. He, He administered justice. He took one who was unjustly being treated, we think of a court, and he made things right. So he's described as a righteous man. He's a wealthy man. We would simply say he's a godly leader. And he stood out in his time. Uh, Fourth, the the high observation, of course, is when the accuser enters into the storyline. And I want to read verses uh, 6 through 9 from Job chapter 1. You can follow along. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. The sons of God here is the word Beni Elohim. Ben, Benjamin, Benjamin, Netanyahu, Ben Hamin, the son of. So in Hebrew, it's the sons of God. Some of your Bibles might say angels, which is not a bad translation. But the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan is the Hebrew word, also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, from where do you come? And Satan answered the Lord and said, From roaming about on the earth and walking around on it. The Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? For there was no one like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. Then Satan answered the Lord, Does Job fear God for nothing? Now this passage is one of the most intriguing in the Old Testament because we've got a court setting where the sons of God, they're created by God, and we can put them in the angelic realm, along with Satan, come and approach him, and they're having a conversation in this heavenly realm, in this heavenly context. And what's at stake here are a number of things. Number one, you see it's Satan, he literally, it's, it, literally the word means accuser. And so the word Satan is not a proper name like we think of it, but it becomes transliterated. We've talked about that before. Baptizo is a Greek word. There's no English equivalent, so we make up the word baptism. It's a letter-for-letter equivalency. Make sense? So we make up a word in English. The same thing happened with Satan. Satan just means the one who accuses, the accuser, and it's used in the Bible in all kinds of ways, but it becomes the proper name for Satan. And you know in 1 Peter 5 he's the accuser of the brethren. 
He never stops accusing us of being sinful people, undeserving of Christ's salvation. And so that's his role. So in the Old Testament, Satan, the accuser, comes up. And you know, basically, it's, he's walking around and roaming around. It's an overstated case. This is my turf. That's what he's saying to Yahweh Elohim. I'm walking around on my turf. I'm doing whatever I please. Because he has been granted dominion on earth until such a time as the Lord returns. I'm doing what I get to do. I'm just kicking my heels being the accuser, and nobody can stop me. And there's a gloating about the Satan, there's a gloating about the accuser and how he is interacting with God. Um, he is the prince of the power of darkness. He is the prince of the power of this age. He is politically speaking the undertones of evil and you, you probably see Christians that have all kinds of opinions on that. You might think me wonky, get in line. Uh, uh, corrupt, evil governments are influenced by the accuser. Uh, people that are powerful and hungry and malevolent and evil and conduct murders and rank has this privilege oversteps, they are being influenced by a power. And this, of course, is all attributed back to his dominion on the earth. Interesting that God talks about Job as my servant. In fact, many times in the book, he refers to him as my servant. He's mine. You might have dominion, but that one's mine. So what's the challenge, if you will? You think you've got dominion? That one's mine. So it's almost like this great cosmic chess game. You think that you can walk around and have dominion on earth. You don't know Job. And that's when... The accuser says, does Job fear you for nothing? You take away everything he's got, he'll change his tune. You touch his family, his life, his health, you take it all away, you'll see the real color, the real Job come out. And so, don't, don't take this too far, but it's sort of like game on. Because God is saying, I'm the sovereign, I'm the one that's providentially controlling affairs. You have a limited amount of freedom on earth as a dominion given to you in your fallen estate, but he's my servant. And so at the theological high level, it's who's going to win this fight over the soul of a man, God or Satan? And this, of course, parallels Jesus and the crucifixion, Jesus and the, and the denials. I mean, all that he goes through, is this the God-man? Who's going to win this battle? Not to overstate the case or to take it too far. Um, because you've blessed him, because you protected him, that's why he fears you. That's why he's a good guy. And so God, of course, allows Satan to touch him. Um, he loses his children. He loses his livestock, uh, thousands of animals. Marauders uh, come in, enemy marauders come in and destroy his, his fringe of his network and property. Uh, his wealth is separated from him. Uh, his wealth, his servants, his children, his livestock, and finally his health. And so he's scraping himself with that potsherd. His wife is a great encouragement to him. Curse God and die. That's her you know, loving way of saying, hang in there, Job. Just curse God and die. Um, so he loses everything. He's no longer an elder, no longer sitting at the gate, no longer do young men listen to every word he says and cover their mouth at his wisdom. Wow. He's, he's a nobody. He's a persona non grata. And he's metaphorically ushered outside the city. Well, first of all, he's got these friends. Eliaphaz, Bildad, and Zophar show up. And at first it seems like, these are really good guys. 
I mean, they sat with him for seven days and didn't say a word. And later on in the book, we have a guy named Elihu who shows up. He's a young man who's really full of a lot of juice. And um, the, the three older guys are more than likely also wealthy and powerful and good men. That's why they were friends of Job's. You run, you know, it wasn't some no one. This was a celebrity of a way. And one of my favorite lines in the whole book is Job 16, 2. Sorry, comforters are you all. It's a great line. You know, some comforts you are. Sorry, comforters are you all. Maybe I'll put that on my tombstone. Sorry, comforters where you are. It's a joke. Um, but his friends give him horrible advice. And here he is wounded and devastated and lost everything, and now he's sick and diseased, and all they can do is come analyze, well, this wouldn't happen to righteous people. There must be some secret sin in your life. I mean, God wouldn't do this for no reason, and it just gets worse. And in the polemic, in the argument between Job and his friends, you, you see who this man really is. His responses are incredible. Is he hurt? Is he sad? Is he wounded? Yes, yes, yes. But he does not curse God. Does he have questions? Yes. Is he angry? Yes. Is he sad? Yes, yes, yes. But he does not overstep that final boundary where he curses God and dies. Um, the book continues, and perhaps the biggest observation for us is how do humans respond to suffering? How do humans respond to unjust behavior? How do humans respond to loss when life isn't fair? Um, we analyze Job's plight. We're obsessed with the, with the question, why? And one of the reasons I think the book is long with many unanswered questions and unresolved issues is because life is long and full of a lot of unanswered questions and full of a lot of unreconciled situations. I also think that is brilliant that God thought this to be the oldest book in the Bible. Nobody gets out without disappointments and trials and losses and injustice and betrayals and poor decisions and consequences of our own sins and on and on and on the list can go. We uh, are going to suffer in this life. Another cheery Michael Easley sermon. We are going to suffer in this life. And that's why the story is so compelling and powerful if we learn the lesson of Job. Uh, Job, finally, before we look at some lessons, Job teaches uh, us that God is personally aware of your situation, yet you must keep in mind He is sovereignly working in ways we're never going to comprehend. And this is where man gets his identity in Christ. Uh, not to be unkind, He loves you unconditionally, but it's, let me just say it this way for illustration. We're puny in the grand scheme of things. Now we're not because He died for us. That's how much He loves us. But in the grand scheme of things, we don't know what's going on. And that's the big theological lesson from the storyline. God is personally involved in your life. He's personally aware of your struggles. He's personally integrally involved in your faith journey. But there's a lot more going on than just little old me. And that's part of being mature, is seeing that life is more complex than just what I see in the mirror each day, and what I hope for in my life and my success and my story. All of us are ill-informed, and when it comes to suffering and trial and losses, um, we, we define them all differently, and we, we judge people when something bad happens to a person. I mean, which one of us in the room hasn't said something or thought something? Well, this person, they got cancer. Oh, this, you know, that's, they deserved it. I mean, they're, they're subtle, perhaps more subtle than that, but there are times when people, we've 
I've done it. When something bad happens to someone, you go, I don't think I'm going to deserve And then I recall, Michael, you deserve hell. You better keep your mouth shut. But that's human nature, and we're ill-informed about trials and suffering. The challenge of Job's friends is an if-then or cause-and-effect theology, that if bad things happen, then there must have been some reason. There's a cause and effect. You did this, ergo God's doing that. And while there's truth in that, that's not the only answer. And that's some of what I want to tease out in these five lessons. First one, it's one lesson that I am convinced of resoundingly. And I can't be argued out of this. It's in my conscience. It's in everything I view in life is that we are fallen creatures in a fallen context. We're broken people in a broken world and bad things are going to happen. And maybe this is my own form of self-protection and denial. I don't know. But when you live with chronic pain or when you see marriages fall apart or when you see a loved one die early of breast cancer or, 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 um, if you go to if-then and cause and effect theology, fine, I can't go there. We're fallen creatures in a fallen context. We're all going to die at some point. We're all going to have a loved one that's going to go through cancer. I mean, we're, we're, we're broken people in a broken context. That doesn't mean you or I are a worse sinner. How many times do I say it? The ground at Calvary is level. Nobody's closer to Jesus because you're a better person. Even a righteous person is still a sinner. Um, but This broken context and broken people is a good reminder that when affliction comes, my response is, I'm a broken person in a broken situation. And asking why can be an exhausting uh, exhausting experience. Now, it's a little bit of an old saw, but old cliche, but it's still a helpful point, is take a long look in the mirror. So when bad things happen, take a long look in the mirror. Examine yourself, as Paul says, and see if you're in the faith. There's some good qualifying there. Um, I've shared the story on many occasions, but it left such a deep impression on me. I was a very young pastor, and there was a, a family that was in turmoil. Uh, another church leader and I were working with this family. They had four kids. Uh, the husband had done some seminary training. He chose not to be a pastor for some reasons, and he was a great Sunday school teacher. His wife was a great Sunday school teacher. Their four kids were delightful and well-behaved. Um, they had devotions at the dinner table. I mean, it was a model family, and he leaves his wife. And the, the issues were obscure and, and cloudy, and this friend of mine and I are going to work with them, and we go to the husband. He, he rented, I can still see all this like it was today. He rented a one-bedroom efficiency, and he had a mattress on the ground and a bicycle. He left his car with his family. Uh, when we went to see him, uh, his comment was, you know, come on in. He was kind. He wasn't mad. He wasn't defensive. He wasn't angry. It was the strangest thing in the world. And we pleaded with him, and he's, he was done. He was done with the marriage, done with his wife. He didn't speak ill of her. He didn't tell all these tales. He didn't blame her. He was just done. Fast forward, we hear reports that uh, he's got a girlfriend living with him. Um, you know, so you start adding two and one and one and two and two and three and three. And um, then I heard uh, sometime later that he was in the hospital. So I'm not going to see him. So I went to visit him in the hospital. I can still see uh, this hospital in Grand Prairie, Texas. I can still see the room as I walked in. A very small room, a lot of equipment. The bed had just been made. There was no patient in the bed. 
and I looked at the, the number to make sure I was in the right room. And about the time I did, I heard this faint voice, Michael, and looked over. And right there in a chair, he, he melded into the room, was this shell of a man with this haggard beard. Uh, he'd lost all this weight. He had IVs in him. His head was slumped down. And he said, hi, Michael. Good to see you. And I sat down and we talked for a few minutes. And within no short order, he asks me, quote, Michael, do you think God's doing this to me because of my sin? Boy, you talk about an impression on a 29-year-old kid. I mean, that was like, whoa. And he, he was glad I was there. He wasn't mad at me. It was a surreal thing. And I, I prayed for him and left. I've never forgotten that scene in my entire life. I'll give him marks for asking the right question. Sometimes things happen to us because of our sin. Be careful on pointing that out in other people's lives because you and I don't know the stories. But always take a good long look in the mirror. That's the point, number one. Always take a good long look in the mirror. The theme of Job is how the righteous endure and face suffering. And if God is kind and merciful and loving and patient and all these things, he's not capricious. He's not going to just, you know, he's not an ogre trying to punish his sinners, but he may, in fact, discipline us. And that's a question we need to ask. Secondly, don't be surprised at the sorry comforters. Um, a large part of this sorry comforters' instructions are just wrong. They're trying to thread a needle that God would not let an innocent person go through problems and pain. Um, it's a very unfortunate thing. Back to hospital rooms, because so much of it happens when, when people are sick. Uh, the same church we were involved with, a young girl had contracted brain cancer, and uh, some, quote, well-intentioned Christians who had a much different view of theology, uh, word of healing and prophesying over and things like this, came and said, the reason your daughter is uh, dying of cancer is you don't have enough faith and you haven't prophesied over this and cast out the tumor and da 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 Now, when, when you're a parent with a teenage girl who's dying of brain cancer and lost her sight and so forth and so on, uh, that's not very helpful. That's a sorry comforter. Now, if that's your belief system, I'm not going to you know, cast aspersions, but you can certainly have gone in there, can we pray for her? Can we pray that God might heal her? Can we pray that God might defy the doctors? Can we pray? I mean, sure, of course, who wouldn't want? But to go in with the assessment, the reason this is happening is because you don't have enough faith. You haven't prayed in faith. If you really believed, and that's where the cynical side of me goes, wait till you are in that bed, and you can't pray or prophesy away or claim that healing like you said that person could have or should have. Um, Elihu is an interesting part of the story. He's younger, he comes in later. It, he's, he's really insufferable to read, but he's more right on than the other three combined because one thing he observes is suffering can purify us. And as I believe in my spiritual life, perhaps in yours as well, no growth no growth occurs apart from stress and suffering and pain and affliction. You will not grow if you have an otherwise silver spoon life. It's when the trouble happens with your marriage, with your children, with your grandchildren, with the job, with the lawsuit. It's when the persecution or the injustice or just the fallen nature of the world careens in on us. That's when we grow. Hate to be the bearer of 
bad news, but in some respects it's good news because we can approach it with endurance. We can approach it with faith. We can approach it with, this is a great opportunity for me to grow, Lord. I don't want to do this, but you're God and I'm not, so strap on for the ride. And that's a better posture for us to go in. Um, when, when you suffer, and just as an, oh, by the way, and I, don't, I want us to be good comforters, we, we worship this community thing in the last decade. It's so interesting how these things cycle in and out in Christianity. Uh, but it's like community, any authentic community, real community, transparent community. It's like this work. What, what that tells me about Christianity is, is a lot. But at the heart, it tells me I can't be real with somebody about my problems and disappointments and delusions and doubts and frustrations with life because people will judge me. I need a safe place. Now, some of that could be immature, and some of it could be overrated, and some of it could be just a fad. But at the heart, to have a body of men and women who love me, whom you love, and they will walk with you through the teenage years, through the chemotherapy, through the broken marriage, through whatever, filling in the blank, is priceless. Because we need people with skin on. We need you know, Christ with skin on in the body. And that's God's Word, God's Spirit, God's people, the broken record. Um, we need good community. Third, when bad things happen, and underscore boldface, when they happen, it is the knee-jerk common sense thing to do, of course, is to remind ourselves we're sinners in a fallen condition. But it's also important to say, okay, where do I need to learn from this? What do I need to take away from this? What's the process going to be like for me? Um, you cannot always neatly organize and tidy up suffering and put it in a box of explanations. Um, sometimes you're going to suffer. And oh, by the way, when someone else suffers worse than you, that doesn't somehow give you a, okay, I shouldn't complain and worry uh, permission. Uh, I tell people all the time, your suffering and your pain are real. It's not a comparison or a competition. And I have friends that have far more issues than I have with my chronic pain and lifestyle. I have friends, you've heard me talk about Johnny in a wheelchair, quadriplegic, 52 years. Uh, her problems are you know, a factor of 2,000 more than mine. And yet that doesn't alleviate or make me feel better. Your problem and your pain is yours. And it's not a competition or a comparison. Yes, we learn from one another, but don't, don't always say, well, I shouldn't complain. So it works both ways or live in the misery that no one understands. Um, why people suffer will never be answered, other than, I think, the, the overarching principle I stated, we're broken people in a broken context, so we're, we're going to be there. While all men are fallen sinners, all women are fallen sinners, we're all fallen people and broken people, don't overlook the basic tenet that, you know, God's at work here when these things happen. Psalm 115.3 you may know this verse. If not, it's one you should underline in your Bible. Read it with me. But our God is in the heavens. He does whatever He pleases. He's God. He's not a democracy. You don't get a vote, I'm sorry to say. He does whatever He pleases. And that can either drive you to despair or it can drive you to encouragement. He's God. And you know what? He does whatever He pleases. That's a good thing. Fourth, maturity is living with unanswered questions. Maturity is living with unanswered questions. Um, to some degree, Job's sorry comforters 
represent our pride, our pretense, our self-awareness that we know how to do these things. We deserve an answer. We deserve an explanation. How many times we are, I deserve an explanation. I deserve an answer to this. No, you don't. Um, C.S. Lewis uh, posthumously was published. I don't know who came up with the title. He didn't, but it was called uh, God in the Dock. It was a collection of essays that had been published not, not never been published, and somebody organized them, put them in a book, and sold them. And uh, if you know about the barrister per, uh, world of the UK, the dock basically was where you were on trial. So whoever organized these essays was trying to say, uh, to use Job's language, if I could talk to you like a man, this is the questions I, these are, I would ask you, and these are the answers I'd want. You need to explain this to me. So God's in the dock, and. Part of our dilemma in suffering is um, he's sovereign and I'm not. Maturity, i got to live with some unanswered questions. Maturity is you will not have the why answers to probably most of your questions. You nor I deserve an answer. You nor I have a right for God to tell us why. I love when people say, I, I, you know, I'm compressing this. When I get through this cancer, what I will have learned. And they're so ready to share what they've learned when they've gone through chemo. Well, I'm not making fun of them. I just think they're missing the whole point. Because there's this underlying, when I get through chronic pain, then I'll be happy and free of pain. And then I can tell you all how I did it and what I did. And how God took care of me. It becomes kind of smug. And then when someone else has it, well, let me tell you what to do. Now, we're not quite that you know, pretentious about the way we do it, but there's a subtle current in our hearts that we project these things. And, of course, the reason we pray that we'll learn something in there, God, teach me what you want me to know through this divorce. Teach me what you want me to know through fill in the blank. Then I'll, you know, I'll, I'll know that this was worth it. What we're really saying is, God, hurry up and get me through this. And then I'll be able to talk about it posthumously, about what happened when the thing died in the past. That's my theory. I could be wrong. Satan's questions. Does Job fear God for nothing? Boy, that should haunt you. Do you fear God for nothing? Do you follow him and obey him and enjoy the things of life? But if he took it all away, would you still love him? If he took it all away, would you still be faithful? This is hard stuff. I find comfort in the warm reality that God is loving and kind and merciful even when I'm stupid. He's loving and kind and merciful even when I'm in pain. He's loving and kind and merciful even when I'm living with injustices, even when my children break my heart, even when friends hurt us. And he's there with us. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and one that looks like the Son of God. He's in the fire with you. He's God and we're not. And that leads finally to this lesson. Uh, maturity is when we grow from glimpses of faith in the midst of doubt versus glimpses of doubt in the midst of faith. It's a little bit of a mouthful, but I like it. Glimpses of faith in the midst of doubt versus glimpses of doubt in the midst of faith. So how am I living? Uh, Job begins at the first part of this. He begins living with in the middle of all this doubt, but he's got glimpses of faith. And at the end of the book, it's just the opposite. He's still got some doubts, but he's living in faith. 
And as you read the last few chapters of Job, if you read Job, when, when you're discouraged, when you think you need an answer, when you're in a lawsuit, when things are going south with the job, when the marriage is on the rocks, whatever the problem is, read Job 38 to 42 every day. Job 38 to 42 answers all the right questions that we're not asking. And God said, where were you when the sun came up? Where were you when the Leviathan, what, did you ever do this? Did you ever command? Have you seen a mountain goat give birth and keep on going? Do you understand that those animals that don't do anything but eat grass are stronger than you? All they do is eat grass and good luck trying to get a spear into them. Do you understand anything at all about who I am and what I've done? And that's when he says the classic line, I repent and duck his ashes, I retract. I have what? Heard of thee from the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. If nothing else in the storyline, what happened through suffering was Job got to know God. And that, to me, is the ultimate objective of all suffering, is what do I need to know about him? We, we lose our moorings in the midst of doubt. When we live in doubt, we get further away from the Word, further away from His Spirit, further away from His people, and we don't need it, we don't care, we criticize it, we, we throw stones at it, we call it hypocritical, etc. But when we go through those things, if we're moored in faith, we're going to have doubt along the way. If you don't, you're not human, you're, you're, you're kidding yourself. You're going to have little part. I mean, don't you? Don't you doubt once in a while? I doubt once in a while. I mean, why would he save a wretch like me? Why in the world? There's doubts that we have. That's normal. But it's in the midst of faith, the context of faith. And it's okay to have those doubts when you're moored to him. Michael Easley in Context is fully funded from donations by our listeners. If you're a regular listener, would you consider giving a one-time or perhaps monthly donation on our website? You can find us on michaelincontext.com. In Context is engineered by Chad Cates, produced by Hannah Seymour, and music composed by Tycho, Chad Cates, and Blair Masters.